boxing is never gonna die. It's fighting, right? It's primitive. It's like sex. We need it. Yes. Guess what happens when you buy castles, man? <laughs> you gotta fight till you're 60 years old. Don't buy castles. That should be the first rule. P.O.P., baby. He was getting in those ears. You're out of your mind, bro. Instead of boxing, it's a sport that keeps on fucking us over and over. But because I'm in love with it, I stay with it. <laughs> And welcome to P.O.P. Picking off punches. I'm with the G.O.D., my D.O.G., the Yiddish G., Derek Drusher. What's happening, fam? Yo, what's going on, kid? Yo, I like that. I like that intro. Sound good, right? That was good. Fluid. You you did that? You came off the top with that? Off the dome piece. Yeah. Freestyling. Yeah. I'm excited about today's uh, highlight. Edwin Valero, boxer who is no longer with us, so we could say anything we want about him. But we are going to have editor-in-chief of Ring Magazine, Dougie Fisher, yeah. commenting I and ask exploring the life of Edwin Valero. They were very close. They were very close. You know what I mean. They were close like you and I. Like yeah. if I was a, a champion, you would show up to the ring of my sparring well, and with your hat to the back, foggy, because dudes with gl glasses, yeah, your glasses get foggy. They do, they do. How do you look? Because I'm angry all the time, and that's the heat, you know, emitting off my body. But I am like your trainer. And you are like my champion, right? Oh, I like look the at, sound of that. Look at how you're- I'm about to give you 11%. Your career, <laughs> look at <laughs> Look at how your career is taken off. Inside. Inside baseball. Yeah. Look at how your career is taken off since I've come into your life. Well, you come with a lot of good positive energy. Nicely balance some negative stuff, because sometimes I like to be on the on the on the dark side. You take oh, yeah. it to the dark side. Yeah, but you've also you also help me be better too sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just life, right? Right. It's light and dark. And this is an interesting story of a boxer, Edwin Valero, who had light, right? Mm -hmm. When we saw him fight, he was an aggressive forward southpaw. Punches and bunches. Punches and bunches, like our la like last week's guest, Mancini. And he hit very hard. Similar. And he hit hard. Very similar in styles, yeah. right? Yes, very but similar. But Valero did hit hard. Right. World, well, it, the record has since been broken by Tyrone uh, Brunson. A lot of boxing writers don't want to give credit. So the record is 18 first-round knockouts in a row. Right. His first 18 fights, that's how he started his career. He knocked out all of his opponents in the first round. Brunson is discredited for a lot of that stuff because his uh six of his other fighters didn't even have a win on the record. Right. Yeah. They used to work level at, of competition. Correct. They yeah. used to work at uh taco shops. Yo, 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 Br Brunson, if you're still alive, I'm just saying I didn't say that. I'm just copying. I'm pretty pasting. sure Tyrone Brunson is alive. I don't know who he is, but I'm just saying <laughs> if he ever rose up on me, and I'm sure he's an imposing finger who could sh finger, <laughs> little finger, figure who could uh, impose as well and stretch me out across Fifth yeah. Avenue. I'm just saying it's the talk. That's that's what a lot of people say. So he he broke Valero's record, but Valero was a beast. What was it? 28 wins, all by 27. 27. 27 and 0, 27 KOs. Wow, yeah. that's impressive. Yeah, I think uh, his longest fight where he won a fight by stoppage in the 11th round. Mm -hmm. I believe. I mean, that's uh, that's that's a feat. It's a very, it's a feat, and he was a two weight champion. What do you mean by two weight champion? He won a a belt at super featherweight and lightweight. I thought you meant he was knocking people out outside the ring. Like oh. two-way. Yo. You know, two-way Motorola. Remember Yo. that? 2010. <laughs> I remember. Damn. you Did you have a two-way? I had a Star Trek. Did you really? Yeah, flipping it with the little antenna in Jones Beach. 
Get out of here. One, never... ta- one tattoo, flossing it. You know when you got your first tattoo, you show, show it up. I had a, I had a lion head here. I used to roll up my sleeve so everyone could see it. That's ridiculous. And you I put know. your pack of cigarettes up on your shoulder? Nah, nah, I wasn't that, that old that school. I'm only did? 42, Pop. I'm not it, my... Is that Japanese writing? You. So if there's a dirtbag tattoo, this is an indication. If you're a dirtbag, this is an indication What's this that say? you are. It says my name, Sergio, just in case I forget. Ah. That's well, why. I have my last name tattooed across my stomach. I saw that. Yeah. That's concerning. That is very concerning. That's thug shit. That's what thug shit. <laughs> Yo, that's real street shit. Yeah, absolutely. Yo, but there's a mentality that's attached to people who get their name tatted across their belly. Like, this is me. Right. I'm here. I'm, I'm 100%. All day, 365. So, like, when it's time to throw down and I take my shirt off, they're like, oh, shit. <laughs> Dresser. Yeah, Dresser. That's the last thing you see before you... Uh... You ever fought without your shirt? Like a street Hell fight? yeah. Did you take off your shirt? Absolutely. How many straight street fights have you been in? A Valero lot. status, 27? More than that. In the ring? For Valero, how many for you in the street? In the, oh, I've got way more fights. How many in your, oh, in, your, in your home with your significant other? Yo! Let's get the mics on that! <laughs> it's only appropriate for this episode. Yo! Well, well it, yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff happens. <laughs> stuff happens. Yeah, so Valero, where was he from? Oh, Argentine? He was from Venezuela. Argentina? Oh, my God. Uh, yo, listen. It's, it's a little say bit it, of say, it, say what you want to say. I want to say... Uh, Argentina, Venezuela, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Irish, Scottish. Yo. But that's why I got you in the mix, but you have yeah. to keep me intact. Yeah, Venezuela, that's right. He had a tattoo. Speaking of tattoos, he had a tattoo of Hugo uh, Chavez, mm-hmm. who was, if I'm not mistaken, and we could pull this up, he was a uh, communist leader who passed away not too long ago. Yo, listen, I'm all about sharing. Yeah. You know me, what I'm saying? Check in on 12% that. for Derek this afternoon. Yeah, let me see. Hugo Chavez. Hugo Chavez. I like him. This is like a, a Che Guevara top guy. Yeah, right? I like that. I like that shit. I'm about to get a, t- a, a Che Guevara tattoo on my neck. Yeah, he was a socialist. And then every time I go to Florida for shows, I'm going to have to wear sleeveless turtlenecks because Cubans hate Che. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, Cubans hate Che like white women hate Michael Che. Bro, you want No, white hear... women actually love Michael Che. Who hates Michael Che? I feel like Michael Che is a comic who gets a lot of controversy. Uh, but he's dope. That's I think the, the woke he's also hates him. He's also very knowledgeable boxing, Michael Che. He, he knows his shit. He's a ferret. I saw his... Did you call him a ferret? <laughs> they said ferret. I said I was... His last show at the stand I was there, he was fucking ripping. Yeah, he's, he's, he's a man. Cool, but, cool dude. What did I just want to say? You, you lost me. With I'm the sorry, Pop. I got oh. slippery. Don't touch me. Che, che Guevara. Well, it doesn't matter. You went from Che Guevara to Michael Che. Uh, this fuck, get this guy some Adderall or something. Yo, maybe I'm on it. And that's mean, why I'm firing him all cylinders. For bing, fuck's bing, sake, bing, man. Bing, bing. Yo, I'm going up. Yo, I'm Michael, going down. Yo, Che Guevara. Da, 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 da. Oh, Michael Che. That's my man. He's funny. <laughs> Who doesn't like Michael Che? Who doesn't like him? Oh, 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 you know what? And he knows boxing. And he knows boxing. Yeah, I like that. You keep me in check, Pod. That's why I need you. 13%. Yeah, bro. Ju- listen, man. Ju- You've been stepping on my punches, man. So I'm gonna have to. Uh, I might have to to bully you a little bit today. You heard? Yeah, Don't yeah. Okay, okay. My palms are mad sweaty. You got me nervous. Nah, you're good. I'm good. Yeah. All right. So check it out. Without further ado, we're gonna bring on the man, editor in chief, Ring Magazine, Dougie Fisher. Hey guys. What's up, Doug? Doug, how you feeling, brother? Feel good. I'm Sergio. This is Derek. We are the host of P.O.P. Picking Off Punches. How you guys doing today? Doing fantastic, yeah. man. Can't complain. Can't p- complain. Happy to have you here. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Only thing I can complain about is the price of the Ring magazine. It's like $9.95 now. You think we could do something about that? 
<laughs> I feel like some of these we should be charging fifteen or twenty dollars. Some of our special issues, to be quite honest. Yeah, yeah, you got to get your bread. It's oh, uh, you know what? You know what I did when I first became editor in chief of the magazine. I dropped the price. I dropped the price from nine ninety five or what, almost ten bucks. Seven ninety five. I right? dropped. No, I dropped it down to like six something, and we did well. We did well for that year, but we 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 barely broke even. And then somebody told me, had we not changed the price, we would have made a profit. And I was like, damn it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> thanks to guys like Derek, who are window shopping Ring uh, Magazine, didn't want to, you know, put I some money. I was just uh, joking around. You know what's a, funny is I used to go to Barnes & Noble's and I would just read the whole magazine while I was I in. did the same thing. <laughs> but I did buy it. I had to, I, 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 you know, early on, when I first started reading Ring Magazine, I was like 10 or 11 years old. Because where I lived in Missouri, Springfield, Missouri, the the sports writers, the local sports writers never wrote about boxing. Unless it was like the heavyweights, right? So occasionally you'd read something about, um, you know, how Muhammad Ali, who had retired, was doing. Or you'd read about uh, Larry Holmes. And I had no interest in Larry Holmes, right? When Mike Tyson emerged, they started writing about Mike Tyson. But they wouldn't write about anybody else. And I was all, I was into the lighter weight classes thanks to Sugar Ray Leonard and and his round robins with, with Roberto Duran and Thomas Hearns. So to get my boxing fix, I'd go to the mall and there'd be a bookstore, there'd be a, a, a newsstand or whatever, and I would pick, and there was a lot. It wasn't just The Ring. It was, The Ring had, you know, sister publications and, you know, there was KO Magazine and Boxing Illustrated, all these, you know, there's a lot of other magazines or whatever. Most of them I would just read. I would read the whole damn thing just standing there. But... If it had an article or if somebody I really loved was on the cover, I would save my money up. I'm at an age where I'm, I'm delivering the newspaper and mowing yards or whatever to make a few bucks or whatever. So I didn't have a lot of um, disposable income, but I would save my money for the, the right issue of Ring Magazine. Dougie, I got to say, man, I've always appreciated your work. Do you still enjoy the lightweight division out of all the other divisions? Yeah. Your favorite? Yes. It's loaded now, right? All of them. I mean, you know, welterweight's a glamour division. Right. And I like I always liked welterweight because it just seemed to me like they had the most talent before I, I or actually really around the same time I discovered Muhammad Ali. And this is in the 70s. Right. So mid to late 70s. I was really into karate movies and I, I idolized Bruce Lee. And I as used soon to as watch you said Bruce that, Lee. I heard some Wu Tang sound effects <laughs> yeah. in the background. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. And I liked those type of, you know, Hong Kong produced karate films, Shaw Brothers, Kung Fu. A lot of times there were period pieces like, you know, feudal Japan, like, you know, ancient Japan and corny stuff, you know, the flying guillotine and five deadly venoms, that type of stuff. When you watch a, a Bruce Lee karate flick, it was different from that type of like really acrobatic choreograph type stuff. I was like, I bet you that dude could really fight, right? And I'd read up on him and I'd read, oh yeah, you know, he can really fight. You know, he was a real badass. I didn't see that in boxing because Ali was past his prime. He was he was getting old. And he was still Ali, he was awesome. He was dynamic in his personality. He was no longer dynamic as an athlete. And when I saw Sugar Ray Leonard for the first time, I'm like, oh, there's my Bruce Lee. There's an American, an African-American Bruce Lee. I could see myself in him. You know, I, I was a little guy. I, I, I never thought I was going to grow up to be like a heavyweight-sized dude. So I kind of also liked the little guys because I was a little dude. I mean, even up to my freshman year in high school, I think I was like 100 pounds, right? 
So I, you know, I like things with weight classes, like, like wrestling and all that, but, and boxing, obviously, but Leonard was like my introduction to boxing and he, he's like the standard, right? And more often than not, the best welterweights, right? They can do it all. They're athletic. They're fast. They're quick. They got power and something about the little guys, they got a chip on their shoulder. Like they go for it, you know, generally speaking. So when you watch the welterweight, the best version of Duran as a welterweight or Sugar Ray Leonard or prime Tommy Hearns or um, Donald Curry, who emerged later, you know, obviously Floyd Mayweather, when he first moved to a uh, welterweight, uh, Manny Pacquiao as a welterweight, he was like explosive, dynamic. And, and, you know, now we got guys like Terrence Crawford and he's going to fight Sean Porter, who's awesome. And Errol Spence. But you look at Crawford, he could do it all. You know what I mean? And he's letting his hands go. There's an activity. I think the heavier you get, the, you know, you're a little bit slower. And, and um, on average, they don't throw as many punches. Welterweight, even, you know, down into the featherweights. I love the Bantamweights. I love the, the junior Bantamweights. That division is hot right now. And the, the lighter you get, the more willing they are to fight each other because they can't make any money otherwise. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it looks true. like a cockfight. Yeah. It reminds yeah, me when I was in Florida, my father my father had a, st- a stuffy nose for reasons we won't talk about. Smell like <laughs> Corona. And he would have cocks fighting. And which, by the way, when these cocks fight, they put these razors on the end of their... Yeah, oh, blades. my God. Yeah, blades, blades yeah. man. Yeah. Uh, Derek got his blade in his mouth right now. It's, it's, it's wild. You wouldn't even notice. Uh, uh, but these cocks will go at it. And I always thought of the, the lighter fighters getting down like that. You know, they was punches and bunches. Yeah. So it's interesting you should mention Sugar Ray Leonard. My introduction to boxing, Azuma Nelson oh. and Sugar Ray. That was wow. the first one. I saw two. a poster at my school and they rolled it up and gave it to me. I was like, really? For me? Nice. It had like electric, like lightning bolts and stuff. I unrolled it, hung it right above my Sega. Yeah. And a week later, that fight went on, and I watched it by myself, mm. and I fell in love with the sport. Right, that's awesome. Zuma Nelson, right. Sugar. Ray. When I was young, and the welterweight division when I was young was great. Trinidad, De La Hoya, yes. Ike Corte, Obacar, so many, so many good fights. And they all fought each other. All that's the great thing. I mean, you had, yeah. you had two or three you had, times over. Right by the mid '90s, you had a top of the welterweight division. You had Pernell Whitaker, who was also the pound for pound number one, recognized pound for pound number one. Right. And then right under him, you had Felix Trinidad. And under Trinidad, you had Ike Corte. And under Ike Corte, you had Obacar. And then at lightweight, you had this superstar at the 92 Olympics, the gold medalist, the golden boy, Oscar De La Hoya. And you knew, looking at his body frame, he was going to go up and wait. And you didn't have to wait that long. Like in 1995, Oscar De La Hoya was Ring Magazine's Fighter of the Year because he fought four times and he fought four badasses at lightweight, right? And then the very next year, he moved up to, to junior welterweight, beat Julio Cesar Chavez. He didn't waste too much time hanging around 140. You, you knew 140 was a pit stop because there was a, a living legend, a Mexican legend, and he was going to beat him and even launch himself even higher. And then as soon as he moved up to welterweight, the first guy he fought was Whitaker. Yeah, Whitaker was getting long in the tooth, but Whitaker... Even a couple of years later against Felix Trinidad in 99, Whitaker was slippery, man. He was and, he and was. tough, underrated yeah, toughness. But yep. that's the great, at welterweight division, these guys all, you know, if they're waiting for somebody to, to come up and wait the way Duran did in the early 80s, you know, and, and make for some huge fights, it was going to happen. And it happened again in the late 90s because Oscar wound up fighting all four of those guys I mentioned. He fought Whitaker, he fought Corte, he fought... Obacar, and he ended the decade um, fighting uh, Felix Trinidad. 
Yep. And that's all you can ask for these for these athletes. One thing that's consistent with all the fighters you mentioned, they're American, most of them. Yeah. And they're they're very elusive and, and crafty. How did you get involved with Edwin Valero? I've always found that very interesting. You covered him well. Yeah. I mean, I was a big fan of him. A straightforward, aggressive southpaw. Right. Tell us about that. How'd you meet him? He was a bit of an enigma because he had a really good amateur background, but he didn't make the Olympics, right? So he's one of these unknown South American fighters. And a lot of times they just stay in South America and they build a reputation there, but you you don't know if they're real because they're just fighting guys in Argentina or they're just fighting guys in Colombia right. or they're just fighting guys in Venezuela. And you see these guys, occasionally they come over to the U.S. and they got a great knockout ratio and, and, a, real, and a sparkling record. And a lot of times they get exposed when they fight the best fighters here in America. But sometimes they turn out to be the real deal, like um, Edwin Miranda turned out to be at least a real puncher. And he didn't make it as a champion, but he was in the mix at middleweight, right? And, and fought, you know, guys like Kelly Pavlik and Andre Ward and, and that sort of thing, uh, fought Arthur Abraham. And then you get guys that they do. They, they, they pan out and they win world titles. And Valero looked like that, like he had that look the first time I saw him. And the reason I saw him early on is as soon as he came to the U.S., his trainer was a guy named Joe Hernandez who had an eye for talent. Joe Hernandez had managed and trained fighters for decades. He had trained uh, or managed Yuri Boy Compass. At one time, he had managed. Your boy was a na- your boy yeah. was nasty. Remember, yeah, I remember when like he fought times. Too. Felix he fought Trinidad, the Irish kid. Oh, uh, was it Duffy? Was it? Oh, John. Uh, oh, John, John Duddy. Um, Duddy. John Duddy. John Duddy. Oh, oh was my a good god, fight. he was already. He was already. And he old, was old. Oh, that was a, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. Still, that was, yeah. Well, your boy was old. Yeah, your yeah. boy was old. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think yeah. John, John Duddy was in his prime. They had the garden. Yeah. All the, you know, Irish flags yeah. are waving. Yeah. Yo, Yuri boy came and worked. Yeah, Daddy found a, himself in a fight. A... But, like, by that time, hey, by that time, Yuri boy had, like, 100 fights. Easy, easy. <laughs> he had, like, I'm seriously, he had, like, 100 he, fights. He was moving around with a record like Durant. I'm just happy that he got to win his championship. Like, he yeah. got one of the belts when he beat, uh, he beat Marquez, right? He did. He beat, well, Stopped yeah, him on I cuts. Think, yep. Yep. You got a good memory, man. Yep. Marquez. And to be honest, Keith Mullings beat Marquez the fight before he did. that. And they, and, they... and and Mullings Mullings chopped up Marquez and Marquez his the those facial wounds didn't heal. That cost him against Yuri Boy. He came back too soon against Yuri Boy. So back to Villero. So his uh his his so coach his, or yeah, trainer. His, his is... advisor manager was a guy named Joe Hernandez out of Puerto Rico. Joe Hernandez's brother used to be the guy who um did the Spanish translations. For HBO, did he butcher it or was he accurate? <laughs> what was you that? Know those, Sp- those Spanish translators ain't shit. It's hard. It, it, you know what? It, it's ha- everything's happening so fast. I They're know, trying to fast, keep yeah, up. Yeah. I, I've heard it's not that easy. But um, I'm like, yeah. he just said there was a dinosaur around the corner from Subway. What? Yeah, <laughs> you speak Spanish? No, I don't. <laughs> Dougie, do you do you speak Spanish? No, I don't. Which is ridiculous because I'm here in LA. My wife speaks Spanish and my two daughters speak Spanish, and I'm just yeah. You probably have more of a, a knack for it than I do, and I'm Puerto Rican and a little <laughs> bit of Dominican. Yeah. Let me yeah. ask you something: Did Edwin speak English? Uh, very little, right? But like a lot of guys, he understood it 100. percent He was very smart. You have Rosetta Stone on the app? No, we didn't have that no. at the time, and <laughs> I wish we did. I wish. So we how did. were you able to communicate with him? So he everybody around him was bilingual. Everybody oh, around dope. him was bilingual. Now Joe Hernandez was friends with Oscar De La Hoya's father. And Joe told 
Oscar De La Hoya's father about Valero when Valero was an amateur because Joe had a really good amateur by the name of Francisco Bojado, who was a Mexican Olympian. He turned pro to a lot of fanfare and, and looked like the next big Mexican star, right? He fizzled out. He didn't have the dedication. Valero had that level of talent. Valero actually beat Bojado in the amateurs, which very few few guys did. Valero had that athleticism, and at least when he was in the gym, he was dialed in 100%. So the first thing I noticed about Valero was like he was like a man possessed. As soon as he walked into the gym, he's a man in a mission. His eyes burned like coals. He didn't need to warm up very much. You know, he would bang the hell out of the bag, and he wanted to spar. And God help whoever would spar with him. Didn't matter how much heavier they were. He would beat the hell out of them. Wow. He, you know what he would do? He always, Everybody he'd spar, he'd take away their arms, and then he would hit them in the chest. Didn't throw a lot of body shots, like traditional looping body shots to the rib cage or to the liver area. He would throw straight shots, either with his jab, which hit like a power punch, or his straight left. So he hit you, he'd hit, hit guys in the sternum or just right in the stomach, and he would break them down. So he would take away their shields yeah. and expose the torso. And, and he hurt Did their he shoulders, said... too. I used to hear guys complain about their shoulders which is, aching. Which is very smart. Yeah. No, he was. He was a smart guy. But he was impetuous. So a lot of folks didn't see. He wasn't the, the cleanest technician in there, but he had an understanding of boxing. And boxing is control of distance. Ring generalship is being able to fight your opponent at the pace you want to fight them at. And that means you can make them fight out of their skin. You could speed them up if they're used to fighting at a medium pace. Or if you box better fighting at a slow or medium pace, you can do things in the ring that are going to slow them down to your pace. That's ring generalship. And having an eye for distance and, and having a control of distance, knowing where your fighters, where the punch ends, right? Valero is very good at this because his chin would be in the air and his hands were often down, like not by his waist, but like they weren't up like this. They were they were at his chest, right? But he could look at his opponent and faint faint him and the, and and watch the opponent jab or throw a right hand or whatever and he would know, okay, I know exactly where his punches end. I know when I'm in range and when I'm out of range. So he was able to always control that and when he stepped in, he always landed his punches. So that to me that's boxing. He not Absolutely. it's not textbook, right? Like Prime Roy Jones Jr. had the athleticism and the hand-eye coordination and the boxing IQ where it was very hard to hit Roy Jones. But Roy Jones could always hit his opponent. But he didn't do it. He had his hands down, you know, because he wanted to. He could do that. He could get away with it. You wouldn't want to train a young fighter the way uh, Roy Jones Jr. fought because they're asking for it because most people don't have his athleticism and natural talent and speed and reflexes. And Valero wasn't on that level in terms of his athleticism, but he wasn't a very high-level athlete, but he could – he just knew like he had he had this this um, intuition where he was not going to get hit, even though he was there. It looked like he was there to be hit. So he could box and he could move if he wanted to. He had good footwork. You know, he, he had very good balance. Um, he could be nimble if he wanted to. He never wanted to, whether he was sparring and certainly not in a fight where he was hell bent at getting that first round stoppage. And so sometimes if you're in a rush to get a, uh, an early knockout, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to look sloppy at times. So you knew him when he was an amateur or you would you'd call wind of him? I knew of him as an okay. amateur because I was friends with Joe Hernandez. Joe Hernandez had his own gym in Vernon, California. It was basically like a little small room on the second floor of like a textile factory or a clothing factory. 
I mean, it was a nice gym and fighters would sometimes like, you know, kind of rent it out. Like, so like world-class fighters would go there for good sparring or just to have some privacy without like, you know, driving all the way to Big Bear or something like that, or, you know, driving to San Diego or Tijuana or whatever. Like it was right there in the LA area and it was totally private. So I would go and watch like the, the you know, whatever, whoever was in Los Angeles at the time, it could be, you know, Juan Lascano or Joel Casamayor, the Cuban or whatever, you know, if they wanted to get away from their regular gym, they could go there. Or if they were, or if Joe had a guy, you know, that was, you know, their weight class, they can go and spar him. And it was private, you know, it was out of, out of sight or whatever. And Joe would let me in and the fighters were cool about it. So Joe was talking to me about this guy and said, Doug, I want you to look at this dude. He's a lefty from Venezuela. My sources in Venezuela say he's the best talent to come out of that country in 30 years. I want you to watch him. He's 8-0, eight knockouts, all in the first round. And I was like, oh, shit, I want to see this guy. So the first time I saw him train, I was spellbound. Like, he reminded Walk me. Walk us through it. I, yeah, I want to yeah. know, what was his training like? Was it the rope? Because, you know, the Started out boxing? on the rope, and he would jump on the rope for long periods of time on one leg, and he would, he would lift his knee up to his chest. And so he'd go like this, and he had a rhythm that he's doing that, almost like he's working his abs, and then he would switch legs. And he That's would do his that. That's conditioning was yeah, crazy. his core must have been out of control. Yeah, and he'd be in the ring, he'd have a headband on, he'd sweat his ass off. Sometimes he'd have the plastic. Because when he first came, he was really a 130-pounder, but they felt he could make 126 featherweight. He didn't know if his first fight in America was going to be featherweight or junior lightweight or whatever, so he was sweating down. I could tell he had never done any kind of weight training or anything more than just like the basics, which a lot of guys from... They're from a poor area in Latin America. It's just like old school. They just do just the basic workouts. It's not like they have, you know, equipment to, to build muscle and that kind of stuff. It's all body resistant stuff. So I could tell. You might see a tire on the floor. Yeah. Just, yeah, yeah. whatever. You know what I'm saying? A sack yeah. of rocks. Right. Box. <laughs> Lift rocks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if a that. bag is a, is, a, is a plastic bag with cat litter in it. <laughs> yeah. It's moving the head. Right. But, but a lot, and a lot of those trainers from there were old school. And I don't think they even believed in weights at all. And, and Joe was an old school guy, but he liked the modern training techniques. So he had, he put his guys on a track and he had them doing, you know, not heavy weights, but you know, like, you know, like, like the rubber bands that, you know, the, that kind of yeah, resistance. functional movement. Right, right. And, 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 you know, he had a guy who was like a, a strength and conditioning coach who went to college for all that stuff, a nutritionist. And Valero's body changed. Like, he could have fought at lightweight, but he was young enough to where he could sweat down to, to 130. I mean, he looked like he was made out of a, a – he looked like a statue. He was yes. in such good shape. He yeah, was... well, he was fanatical about training, and he was a really good natural runner as well. He could just run his ass off and he would, you know, he would run every day. If he could spar every day, he would box in the gym every day. And other guys weren't like that. Other guys had been kind of indoctrinated into sort of like the Monday, Wednesday, Friday sort of uh, schedule, which a lot of boxers are now. And Valero was that dude who wanted to do it all the time. Did you ever see people turn down sparring? For sure. Edwin? Like, yeah. oh yeah, I forgot my mouthpiece at home. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's one of his first claim to like infamy or like you know uh claim to to fame within the 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 la boxing community was uh juan lascano was gearing up he was a, a lightweight contender real good fighter the hispanic causing panic right that was it yep. yeah steve kim used to call him the manic hispanic because he was up and down he was kind of he was a little nutty but a badass a real tough guy and he was big so 
a month out from his fights, he wasn't even close to one one thirty five. He was like a, a full bodied welterweight. He was a scrappy dude. I think he was out of Texas, and he had that attitude where you know if you wanted to get macho on him, he'd get macho back on you. But he was going to fight. He was fighting, I think, an elimination bout against Stevie Johnson, who was a southpaw. And uh, so he needed lefties. Little but bad. Little but bad. Man, you got yeah. it. God damn, you're good. <laughs> you, man. Got, man, you got the nicknames like, down. Elephant. I'm impressed. <laughs> Derek Elefante. Derek, I am, I'm impressed. Yeah, li- he was going to fight little but ba- bad Johnston. So he needed a, le- uh, a left-hander, and he sparred a few days with Edwin Valero. And I think on the third day they were supposed to spar, he didn't show up. And he left all his stuff at the gym. He didn't even come back to get like his training cup and all that. He had left all that stuff there because they were supposed to spar all week. And he was like, oh, I think after shit. two sessions, he's like, nah. He wound up finding uh, Joe Goosen's gym in the valley where uh, Casamayor was, and they worked together. <laughs> he was like, That's I'd rather be in here with this this dirty, crafty ass Cuban than that maniac from <laughs> Venezuela. That is hilarious. You but that got around. Is- the guy who was who was with Lascano was a, a Freddie Roach understudy, a former heavyweight uh, journeyman named Macafoli, and Macafoli was telling people back at Wildcard, man, I saw this guy Edwin Valero, he was incredible. I brought Juan over there to spar with him, and I couldn't Juan couldn't do nothing with this guy. He was kind of like an urban legend, you know what I mean? And this is in this is in two thousand and three. Yeah, and people didn't want no parts of it. Yeah. Wow. You know what that what's that? That's the equivalent. Because I'm a comic, as well as Derek. Stand-up comedy, right? That's the equivalent of bombing so bad that I leave my personal belongings at the club and I don't come back. I'm like, yeah, they could keep my jacket. They could keep my uh, my Raiders fitted hat that's only six Which hours Which has happened old. to Sergio before, so. <laughs> so check this Everybody out. Everybody has uh, those days. So he was, a beast know, in, he was a beast in the gym. What do you anticipate his future would have been? I was bullish on him. Yeah, I wonder, I always wonder myself, about Broner, if if they would have got to fight, if Broner and him would have got to fight, I think he I think he tears Broner up. Broner's low volume. It would have been like a Maidana. Yeah, worse, 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 right? Yeah, yeah. And Maidana's one of those guys out of out of South America who kicked. You know, he had this huge knockout record against nobodies over there, but then he came over here and he turned out to be real. You know, but I think Valero was just was better than Maidana. He Valero had Maidana's power the heavy handedness but he had better technique and he had and he had faster hands and he was a lefty and he could move around if he needed to he could get on his toes and move around if you remember his last fight he sustained a terrible cut from an elbow from um Antonio DeMarco DeMarco yes. yep that was a great fight he was able to box him from a distance but still break him down so when he needed to he could get he could get on his stick and move a little bit he was really a versatile fighter. He was search and destroy by nature. That was his mentality. But he did have the ability to do other things in that ring. Yeah, I mean, not not just based on the Madonna fight, but just based on the style. Because at the time, Broner wasn't around at the time that, uh, you know, Valero was making his name. Um, so he was making his name in the gyms in 2003 and 2004. And he wasn't allowed to fight in the United States in 2004. And he was inactive that entire year, but he was in the gym literally every day that year of 2004, and he's sparring. He would travel. He's like a gym gypsy. He was traveling to all the best gyms in Southern California, and wherever he was, everybody had a story. Oh, he came, and he knocked out this guy. He came in here, and I, I counted. He, he threw 900 punches 
in one round on the heavy bag. I couldn't believe God. it. You know, he, everyone has that. And you can go on YouTube and you, you know, you can see people saying stuff, you know, eyewitness accounts from Southern California trainers watching Valero train and spar. But by 2005, he got his license in Japan and he got his license in other places outside of the U.S. And in 2006, he won a world title at 130 pounds. So at that time, you know, there was like, there was Eric Morales. There was uh, Marco Antonio Barrera. Those were the big names at 130 pounds. There was Joan Guzman. He emerged around the same time. And, and that was the guy that v Valero had his eyes on. But there were, the, I remember there were the Peterson brothers. One of them. Lamont. Yeah, one, yeah, there was, there was uh, one at lightweight and the other at 140 pounds. And I remember I was at uh, Wildcard Gym and a boxer who had sparred with the Petersons and liked them a lot said, I, I bet you, I'll bet you money that the Petersons will beat your boy Valero. And I said, I'll take that bet. And no disrespect to the Petersons who were tremendous amateurs and Lamont was a tremendous pro, but the way they boxed, they cover up, you know what I mean? And they, they were aggressive guys. They liked to come forward. They were technicians, but they were very orthodox technicians didn't always handle lateral movement that well, but the way that they would defend was to hold their hands up. And I could just envision Valero destroying the forearms, elbows, and shoulders, hitting them in the biceps, breaking that down, bringing those arms down. And then once he had a clear shot at the chin, it was over. Once he would land that shot, you know, even if you got up, it was like you were snake bit, you know, like, like Felix Trinidad after he would land that left hook. Most guys, they couldn't recover from that, even if they were able to survive that knockdown or that wobbly moment or whatever. And he was very good at breaking guys down and, and a maniacal finisher. That sparring never happened? The Lamont Peterson and Valero, no, right? That no, never it never happened. I just remember. But I, I kind of put Adrian Broner in that class. I think Broner probably has more natural ability than Lamont Peterson. I think Lamont Peterson, more of a hard-nosed fighter, higher volume, definitely. But the thing about Broner is Broner likes to stand his ground and do the shoulder roll. He'll take the punches in his shoulder, and he, but he's there to be hit. He's there to be swarmed on. And his problem is he, you know, he has beautiful combinations when he would let his hands go. But against the better fighters, he didn't let his hands go. When he was the bigger guy, you know, at 130 or 135, a little more offense-minded. But when he stepped up his level of competition, even against a guy who wasn't a puncher like Pauli Malinaji, he could be outworked. And the thing you got to remember about Valero, Valero had one punch knockout power, but he was a volume puncher. He could swarm you. Like I said, he had that intuition of knowing how to get out of the way of a punch, how to stay just out of range of a punch, and then how to step in range and let his shots go and land those shots where he needed them to go. Do you think he was set for a long reign at lightweight? No. I don't think he was set for a long reign in life because he was crazy outside of the ring. He was very disciplined in his training. He would give his trainers everything. If he could respect his trainers, and when he respected a trainer, he, he would do whatever was asked of him. As a matter of fact, the trainer's biggest job, and one of his trainers, Ken Adams, would tell me, was to hold him back, not let him overtrain. He had that fire like that. Did you ever uh, hang out with him outside the ring? Oh, no. No, no. He was, he was, I'm not going to say he was private. He was private with his family. Although I did visit him at, at his apartment once. I, I wanted to actually read the medical papers. When he was banned to box in, in New York State, every other U.S. jurisdiction had to put him on medical suspension. Right. He had a motorcycle uh, accident. They saw, they did a, New York did an MRI because he was applying for an, a license in New York City. He was supposed to have his uh, HBO debut. It was going to be HBO Latino 
in January of 2004. He was going to fight a real tough guy, a guy who'd never been knocked out, named uh, Lorenzo, I think was his name. Something Lorenzo. Tough Dominican fighter. Giovanni Lorenzo. What was it? Giovanni Lorenzo. Was it? No, that guy, yeah, that guy was also Dominican, but that guy was a, a middleweight. I got... Okay. Dimena loco. Yeah, oh, yeah he was a Dimena loco. Yeah. Francisco Lorenzo. Francisco. Real awkward dude. Real tough. It was going to be like, okay, here's a litmus test. He's, he's fighting on HBO now. Let's put him in there with somebody who's not supposed to be knocked out, and let's see if he can knock this guy out. If anything, they were hoping that Lorenzo could take him out of the first round. Because really, the people around him, from his manager to Joe Hernandez to his trainer at the time, Clemente Medina... They wanted him to get rounds, you know. And Valero himself wanted to fight for a world title as soon as possible. And they didn't want to do that until he at least had like a 10-rounder under his belt, right? That makes sense. And to me, that's the crazy thing about Valero and why he's so special and why when you talk about mythical matchups, I'll often defer to, to Valero, even though he's not as as proven as some of these other guys. And it's not just because of what he was able to do in sparring against guys like, you know, Eric Morales or Juan Lascano or Jesus Soto Carras, you know, who was a welterweight and all. It was the fact that when he did get his title shot, he had never fought past the second round. Only one fight had he gone out of the first round. And yet he fought a badass in Vicente Mosquera, fought him on his home turf in Panama, and he was dropped in the third round. And he was cut as well. And he got up. And he proceeded to beat down Mosquera until the corner stopped it, I think, after the 10th round. And that tells me something. A dude who never fought into those late rounds was in with the badass, and they were fighting in hard. In his hometown. In his home country. Right. And, right. He talked, and he talked a lot of shit prior to that. So the Panamanians weren't happy with him. He was like, he was really the enemy. So he was really walking into the lion's den. It was a wild, crazy fight. But over the second half of the fight, where you think... Mosquera, who was used to fighting 12 rounds, 10 and 12 rounds, and beating guys up, that he would come on strong. But it was Valero who came on strong, even though it was uncharted waters for him. He'd never been in the deep end, and he swam. He swam in the deep end. So I'm like, that's the kind of character that he has in the ring. Now, outside of the ring, I think he was a little wild. I think he did mess with drugs, and he was one of those dudes... When he didn't have a fight coming up, he liked to dance. I know that. He liked the conga rooms, right? He liked the conga. And he was also one of these fighters that was always wrecking his car. Like he went through, I don't know how many cars. He was always yeah, wrecking. Yeah, that's so usually a, a, yeah. a big red flag that shows yeah. that there's chaos if right. you're wrecking your car. Yeah. But, he's, but yeah. he never missed. He never missed a training day. Like no matter what he did, and I know guys that trained, trained alongside him in Las Vegas when he was training with Ken Adams. And this particular fighter told me like he would be up all night drinking tequila and doing speed and, and Viagra. He, he liked the effect of Viagra, not necessarily for sex, but just the heart rate. He liked that, you know, but he was, he was, so he was mixing alcohol with. So he liked living on the edge. Yeah, but he wouldn't sleep, but then he would show, he'd be at the gym and outwork everybody. Wow. So he's one of those freaks, but I do feel if you're burning the candle on both sides, you're going to burn out. So I didn't think he would have a long career, but I thought he would shine very brightly and be like a Roberto Duran type in that he had this kind of mystique and macho swag. But, you know, modern, modern era. He could really fight. He wasn't just like a wild man. He's not like a Ricardo Mayorga. Yeah. You know, who also had his underrated craft as well. But He was fun to watch, man. He Ricardo was. Mayorga. He was. And, and, <laughs> he was and Mayorga burned the candle, uh, you know, on, on both sides as well, you know. So 
I, at the very least, I thought he could be somebody must-see TV, very fun, like Mayorga, who would win some big fights but also lose some big fights. But I thought he could be, for a brief period, like a Roberto Duran and dominate and kick a lot of ass. And I thought, you know, win, lose, or draw, he would be a hit because they were dance partners. There was Manny Pacquiao. There was Joan Guzman. There were the older Mexicans like, uh, you know, Marquez, uh, Morales, and Barrera. I've talked to these guys, Barrera, because uh, Barrera utilized him for sparring just like Mor- uh, Morales did. In fact, the the camp that Morales used Valero in, that was before he upset Manny Pacquiao. Morales had Valero in to be his Manny Pacquiao in training. Interesting. And, and Valero didn't take it easy on Morales, and that, that was just what Morales needed. A, to make 130 pounds. B, to be ready for that speed and dynamic, explosive hands. Yeah, and crazy angles and all. And he was ready. He, he beat Pacquiao in that first fight. So, like, guys like Barrera Morales, they, like, they let it be known that Valero, like, really gave it to him in sparring. Yeah, yeah. And Morales, especially at that time, Morales wasn't going to give guys their props. He was so proud. I mean, he wouldn't even give Barrera his props. I know. He's just now <laughs> able to give Barrera his props. And because he was he was a surly dude. He had nothing good to say about anybody, man, especially if you weren't Mexican. But even if you were Mexican, he was like... That guy and all that, you know. I mean, Bar- but, Morales but, and Barrera hated each other. Yeah, that it was, was real. so fun to watch. The, yeah, it the was real. Arguments. Yeah, yeah, they were like the blood and crips in the early '90s. The way they hated each other. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So check this out. An amazing, you know, highlight reel is is floating around of Valero. You highlighting this for us is super appreciated. Like it's just awesome. I've always been intrigued by him. I even was intrigued by the tattoo he yeah. chose. To put across his chest. That was a red flag, Hugo too. Chavez. That wasn't good. That wasn't <laughs> I was good. like, I like him. He likes to share communism. Yeah. Now, I mean, I don't have a problem with his political leanings, but getting that kind of a tattoo on his chest, what it was, and, that, and he did that when he went back to Venezuela. And what I did notice, this is during his lightweight reign. So he, he won a the WBA title at 130. I was there. I did the, it was a small pay-per-view here in the United States. It was uh, Austin, Texas. Texas was the one... U.S. jurisdiction that would allow, <laughs> would clear him to fight. Go figure. And he beat a tough Colombian, Mexico-based Colombian named Antonio Pitalua. He was a knockout puncher himself and was on like a 14 or 15 bout knockout streak. And he blew him out in two rounds. He had just signed with top rank. But prior to that fight, so this was, De- I think it was December of 2008, he was in Las Vegas and he bet a lot of money, thousands of dollars on Manny Pacquiao to stop Oscar De La Hoya. Because he was one of De La Hoya's sparring partners. He said, De La Hoya doesn't have it anymore. In fact, they, they wouldn't let me spar with him. They were hanging out together. <laughs> Maybe they were, yeah. Maybe they were partying. Yeah. I didn't think about that. Partying. They were hanging out together. Yeah. He knew the deal. Maybe De La Hoya couldn't hang with Valero in partying. And that's why he's like, you know what? You don't have it. Yeah. So it's the wee hours of the night. Valero's still doing the con got that. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Hey, hey. So he was in town. And he was uh, a friend of his brought him over and was translating you, you know, us. And he was... He was telling me about you know, why he believed that Pacquiao was going to beat De La Hoya and why it was going to be a stop. I think Valero predicted the round, as a matter of fact. I think he said like eight rounds and that's it. He was looking at promoters to sign with. And he eventually, you know, so he's asking my opinion on each promoter. And and, and he wound up with um, top rank. But the management that he had at the time, they were they were kind of in awe of him. It was like we they were giddy. Like we signed a superstar. He can't miss one thing Valero had with Joe Hernandez, and they butted heads all the time. In fact, Valero would leave Joe for several weeks at a time and say, I'm not with you anymore. I'm going to train at a, a different gym. I'm going to get my own trainer and all that. 
and then they would reconcile. And this would happen over and over. So they had a volatile relationship. And Valero was volatile like that. But the management that he was with didn't keep him under wraps. And, and, and Joe Hernandez did that. Joe was like, no, I don't want you going back to the hood. I don't want you going back to Venezuela because he was a gang member in Venezuela. All of his friends were still in that life. Joe knew from 50 years in boxing, he knew if, if you got a guy from the hood or the barrio or whatever, and they're in, they were involved in, in crime at one time, right? That if they go back to their old haunts, they can easily fall in with the old crowd and easily get caught up in something. So every time Valero would go back to Venezuela, something would happen. It'd be like a stabbing, like, oh, he got attacked at a club or whatever, or a shooting. His wife got shot in the foot or something, a drive-by and all that. And it was a mistake. And the management that he had at that time would just say, okay, you want to go? And maybe they couldn't tell him what to do. I mean, by this time, he's a two-division champion, and he's looking at, in his mind, he's going to be making a lot of money. He's going to have that showdown with, with Pacquiao. I mean, that's why he signed with, uh, with Bob Arum and company. Although Aram didn't want to have him fight Manny Pacquiao. Aram would talk about maybe doing Pacquiao Valero in, uh, not Singapore. What was that? Uh, Something with an M? Macau. Macau. Before he ever took Pacquiao to fight in Macau and did some cards in Macau, before he signed that Chinese Olympian, Aram was talking about Macau. And he thought that would be a spot if he were to make pull the trigger on Pacquiao versus Valero, which to me was my dream fight. That was the fight that I wanted to see so bad at 135, maybe at 140, but that was the fight I wanted to see the most uh, at a certain time. I'm going to say from like 2006 to 2009, that was the super, my super fight. It wouldn't have been a super fight to everybody, but that would have been the fight that I, I would have been all in on Valero. No disrespect to Pacquiao, just because I think Pacquiao was at a stature where he looked at Valero like, yeah, whatever, you're just a young wild man. I don't believe Pacquiao would have respected him. Not in the first fight, anyways. I think Valero would have shocked him in the first fight. If they had a, a rematch, it could have been a different story. But I know this, it would have been insane. It would have been just explosive every round. Two little pit bull southpaws with explosive hands. It was such a tragic ending to his life. You know? Yeah. Yeah, so it, it wasn't proven. It was allegedly, right? Yeah, that he, uh... I know people who don't believe it. I know people who believe the wife was murdered and he was murdered. Like you know, he didn't hang himself. Somebody hung him in jail. Like he had. And you don't know. I mean, he had that. He had that Hugo Chavez tattoo across his chest. He was probably a target by many different sides. You know, but the, the, he was kind the of all over the place in terms of his ideology and all that. Because I mean, yeah, he was pumping up communism, but he wanted to get paid. <laughs> yeah, right. At least when he was in America, he was. Sometimes what w- would lead to the rifts with him and Joe Hernandez. Uh, and him and, and De La Hoya's father, the manager, was that he would see how much other people were making. If he thought he was better than somebody and he found out that somebody had a sweeter contract than he did, he's like, I don't want to fight. I don't want to fight for you. And this is I, like his ego couldn't take it. Right. Yeah, he, wanted, he definitely wanted to be paid. He wanted to be paid what he believed he was worth, you know, even before he had actually proven it with fights. What, what, what's interesting about this, you know, even and we'll, we'll close with this, with a, a fighter such as Valero, this is, I feel, I was a little apprehensive about pulling the story, right? I was like, you know, because of the ending, it was so sad, right? Yeah. Then I learned that my producer, Marshall, was able to bring Dougie Fisher on to talk about it, and you were <laughs> close to him. I was like, oh, yeah, we're definitely doing it. And the reason why I feel that way is because it's tragic, right? And mm-hmm. a lot of people, but you know, obviously, if I had to, you know, come to a decision, I would say, yeah, it's a probably domestic dispute. But in spite of all that, 
life is full of these tragedies, right? Absolutely. I mean, we can even look at my my favorite pop singer, Michael Jackson. Hee hee. Like, yeah. He was the background to my upbringing musically. Sure. Same. He might have touched a few kids, but I'm like, yo, I kind of still like his music. Yeah, you know, no, what I'm saying is we yeah. want to highlight the good in him, right? right? So Edward Valero, we followed him. He was a passionate fighter. He brought us such good entertainment. You were around to give us a slice of that history, which I think is so important. His sure. tenacity, his power in both hands. And I think that should be celebrated because that's what... It's all, it's all part of a mystique. It's all part Absolutely. of a mystique. It's Absolutely. all part of a story. It's not a happy story. It doesn't have a happy ending, but it's still fascinating. Absolutely. It really is. This drive that he had never to accept, like, when he was banned from fighting in the U.S., most fighters would have just left immediately. Like, okay, I got to make a living. I'm going to go back to my own country. No, I'm not going to get rich, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be able to fight and put food on the table. Or... I'm going to quit boxing. Like, oh gosh, well, gee, I had this motorcycle or motorbike accident and these doctors here are saying it's not safe for me to fight. So maybe I shouldn't fight. Now, most fighters aren't like that. They don't accept things that easy. But there are some rational guys that are like, okay, it's not worth it. If, if I've got something in here that, I, if there's a greater chance of me springing a link in my brain, you know, uh, you know, what do you call it? An aneurysm? I don't want that. I retired, you know. Brain bleed. Brain bleed. I don't want, I don't want to have a brain bleed, right? And he was just like, nope. He he stayed in the U.S. And I couldn't believe it. He was training every day of 2004 like he had a fight coming up, like he had a title fight coming up. Wow. So he had that kind of drive. I don't know what the situation at home was when I read the medical papers, which, by the way, said that he was okay to fight. You know, the doctor's opinion was that boxing is bad, period. Nobody should box and that he should retire. The, the medical opinion was that if he chooses to continue his career and there is a commission that allows him to fight, he should have neurological checkups like quarterly or at least every year to see if everything is okay. He needs to kind of monitor that more than your average fighter. It was a neurologist and it was a psychologist. They both did their little battery test or whatever. They said he was fine. He was normal, no different from anybody else who's licensed to box, right? While I'm reading that, like he's in a small apartment like in Montebello, and I think his wife was pregnant at the time with his, uh, his second child. I did get kind of the feeling that this is like one of those things where like uh, a, a boyfriend or, you know, a, a young husband who kept tight control of his of his wife. Right. Like she just she was real quiet and just stayed in a room or whatever like that. But then I would see them out like I was, you know, when I saw them in New York City before he was, you know, had his license pulled or, you know, was rejected from fighting. They all seemed very close and loving. And the same thing after the Pitalua fight in Austin. I saw them all together, and they seemed like this very close, loving family. I traveled to, to Tokyo for his first title defense, his first 130-pound uh, title defense. Everybody seemed nervous. In fact, his mother was in Tokyo with him, and she seemed like she was on edge around him, at least prior to the fight. So I'm not going to sit here and say that he, he wasn't a domestic abuser or whatever. I am going to say this. There's some funny business with the evidence surrounding the murder of his wife and his own, his suicide. I think there's some funny, and I know people who don't believe it. And I know people who have researched it for like documentaries or whatever, like Venezuelan filmmakers who don't believe it. Don't believe that he killed his wife or killed himself. So for whatever it's worth, I didn't do the research. I didn't do the research. That's, what, that's just what I've been told. But maybe that's just me wanting 
Maybe that's denial, not wanting to believe it. Yeah, you want to hold those yeah, good memories right. close to your heart. Last right. thing before we go, were you, and I believe I'm correct in saying this, were you witness to James Tony's sparring, that, that footage that's out there? He got the green headgear on. Oh, that's uh, Danny Green. Green. Great guy. Yeah, was, Danny was Green from Australia. No, I didn't witness that. Here's what happened with but that. But there was another one where he, at the end, he was like, I'll do this to all you. Oh, yeah. yeah, I, don't yeah. If you, I don't care if you fly away. Or, or your, your mama, mama weight. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that's Venice James, man. No, that's James as a head. That's James before his first heavyweight fight against um, uh, Evander Holyfield. W- were you in the building? Yeah, I was there. Yeah, I was there that's with Max so, Boxing. Yeah. So. Oh, that's yeah, awesome, we, man. We filmed that. Yeah. Great Dougie, stuff. Dougie, can we get you back on and oh, highlight course, another one of our favorite fighters? Yeah. You are the man. Thank yes. you so much. Guys, this thanks is for having excellent. me on. This is great. And uh, yeah, that's our episode with uh, D- Dougie Fisher. My man, we're going to be in contact. When you're in New York, we got a spot for you right here yeah. on this nice oak table right here. We got a seat for you right in the middle. I'm overdue a, a, a trip to NYC for sure. Yeah, yeah, man. I can't wait to meet you in person. Man. Yeah, we're do it for so sure. nice to meet you. Looking forward to it. All right, peace. Take Doug. care, Thank Doug. you. BC lightweight champion of the world, Edwin Dinamita. Doug Fisher, man, that was great. What, that was what, great. what a treat, bro! I'm like a kid in a candy shop with this stuff, man. I will be lying if I was to say I wasn't a little jealous because you guys were connecting. He was super impressed by you, but little does he know you were cheating on Wikipedia. No, I, bro, I looked at Wikipedia once. Keith Mullings doesn't even have a Wikipedia no, page, you're, you're, bro. Yo, you gotta be in tune. Yo, you, yo, I'm not. What do you think? I'm here for my health. You brought me in here for what? <laughs> Yo, I was so impressed by your knowledge that I'm going to give you a new nickname. It's going to be Derek Elefante Drescher. And now you're you're up at 14%. This is recorded. This is recorded. We got you. 14%. Where's that percentage? Well, you're breaking up. There's a bad connection here. Yeah. This is no longer working. We got to redo this. I just want to, like, I never knew about the mystique uh, surrounding him in the gyms. I never knew about that. About Valero. Edwin, yeah. yeah, stretching these dudes out, punching their arms off, fighting all different uh, weight classes. Rocky Marciano shit. Yeah. yeah. He was a mean dude. Yep, yep. So we, we, I want to, you know, stress that I think it's also important, right? There's tragedy, uh, you know, in this story, but I want to highlight the good, and there was a lot of good, and Doug uh, knew this guy intimately, you know, in the ring, behind closed doors. He right. saw him day in and day out training, and that's what I really wanted to showcase and pronounce. And I well, think we did a good job. Bro, that's, doing you know, that. we had Ann on here. We had Ray Mancini, you know, uh, we, and we just did an episode on, on Edwin Valero. And this is, you know, what I love about you, man, is you always, there's trauma. People have trauma. There's, life can be traumatic for everybody. Everybody's pain is their pain. You know, we've been through stuff ourselves in our lives. We, we kind of got stuff going going very decently for both of us right now. It doesn't always work out great in the end for people, but there's always something special in everybody. Absolutely, you know? and they could, there's there's motivation there. I mean, we could take uh, his tenacity, his drive, his will, his ability to make something out of nothing for the short time he was doing it. Right. right. Even though he was on speed and mushrooms and, and Corona. <laughs> Hey, Corona man. beers. The hap- the happiness. I think it's hilarious that he was in little sports cars wrapping around telephone booths. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bro. When you he's when like you, me and my little Fiat. <laughs> when you total all your bro, because I that was my thing back in the day. I crashed every car I ever owned. Every car I ever owned. I, I, I like, wrecked all of them. I like how you used to crash cars. Now all you do is ride city bikes. I know. <laughs> bro, changed. there's a reason. There's Yo, I a changed reason. too. I used to rock I used to rock Sean John Fabrics. Now I'm rocking Lulu. I used to rock Rockaware. 
Lululemon, do you want to sponsor us? Yeah, right. Yeah. I don't want you to sponsor us. How about that? You want to know why? Because you're fake. Which, by the way, I think is very concerning. <laughs> Which I think is very concerning that, you know, in case you don't know, listeners, Derek is a phenomenal instructor slash trainer, but he eats like a Supreme Dirtbag, Coca-Cola, Cheetos. I don't need to be in shape to tell other people how to get in shape. Right? I know what the fuck I'm doing. I've run four marathons, three ultras. All right? Yo, I did how, that shit in two years. You, I how'd quit. You, how'd you complete an ultra? Were you on that speed well, corona? Like I just had that tenacity, bro. I'm just built different than most human beings. Oof, you know, like they say less than 1% runs a marathon. It's even less for ultras. You yeah. got to be a certain kind of human being. I think it's impressive that I'm running the marathon. And I was fresh off coaching. of heroin. I, was, I still smelled like I still smell like rehab. Yeah, but you didn't have bunions like me. Yeah, well, you got to take care of your feet. Well, no, that's a natural occurrence, bunions, right? Yeah, so make no mistake. If someone's running an ultra or a marathon, they're running away from something. In Derek's case, it was heroin use. It was heroin. I was running away from heroin. <laughs> or maybe I was running to it, but we'll never know. I want to say I'm super proud of you. I'm super proud of us. Super proud of you too, buddy. And we're doing it, man. This is the fourth episode of No, this P- is the third. Yeah, that's why, that's why I need my man Derek to clean up my mess. DBS meets P.O.P. <laughs> That's Derek Drescher, Derek the Yiddish G Drescher, Sergio Chicone. Another episode. It's been phenomenal. Episode number three. We're wrapping it up. All that good stuff. Make sure you tune into the next one. We are out of here, guys. Peace.